Well, I, I did something quite depressing this week. Oh, oh no. hear about it. Yeah. Well, I suppose I better, hadn't mm-hmm. I? I might need to help you. I might need help after mm. this. I need counselling, mm. Susie. Okay. Um, we did our wills. Ah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's a really important thing to do. Actually. Have you done your will? Yeah. Well, we've done it twice actually. Yeah, we did. You keep it. changing your it. mind about the outcome. Yeah. Do you? Mm-hmm. Well, no, we changed our mind because we took a few people out that we weren't going to leave any. Yes. <laughs> You've fallen out with not having them in there anymore. No, no. Well, some have some have passed away, so that's oh, okay. that's probably okay, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And some that we felt that they didn't need the money, so that's fine, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> What about you then? <laughs> well, yeah, we we did ours this week, and it's a bit it's a bit sort of a sobering thought because it makes you confront the idea that you might not be here forever. Because mm. I've always kind of thought, if I die, not when. Well, you yes. know, because I mean, well, I yes. know it's going to happen sometime. I'm not stupid. And when you see it in writing, when one of you die, you think, what do you mean when? That's a bit abrupt. That's a bit rude. Yes. You don't you don't have to say that, do you? Lawyers. Yes. But yes, yes, apparently they do. Twice I've done it and it's always been sort of a um epiphany moment actually because I always think well when I'm gone, when that happens because we all die, there's no if, you know, there, there yeah. is that if, is the if, end if, but if we just happens. it's it's just In my when. Case. Yeah. Yes. If, yeah. But what will you leave behind? Would you want to leave a tidy house? Yes, there's this as well. But you know mm-hmm. there's such a thing as death cleaning, don't you? Death cleaning? Yes. What do you you mean? Well, it's to encourage you to clean things out properly and to Ah, sort of minimise. And they call it death cleaning. And so what you do is you approach your big tidy up with a view to, if you weren't going to be here tomorrow, how would you want people to find the house? Exactly. It's called death cleaning, Susie. And that is an approach that apparently makes you very minimalist. And quite frankly, probably just leaves space on the shelves for you to buy other things. Yes, that's right. I've never heard that term before, death cleaning. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's but there's some things you never want to get rid of, really. You know, these the photographs. Photographs are a huge thing, really, because mm. what do you do with photographs? You always want to keep them and you kind of want to pass them on, but they might not be interested in most of them. Not the, the one of you at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> when you have your tongue hanging out because you've had six glasses of wine and you're making a face at the camera. But I, I've still got cine camera Oh, wow, reels Linda, that's great. From, yeah, but they're, they're just sitting in reels. I'd probably mm. have to have them converted. I don't even know if it's worth doing it. But you see, that's another thing, isn't it? Because as things move on, Mm. You, you can't you can't look at them anymore. That was in an old projector. You had to wind it all round things and do fancy things, and then <laughs> switch all the lights off and find a sheet and hang it on the wall and and watch them in that. Do you remember that time? I do. And do you yeah. remember feeling like you were a film director because you had this silly camera which which had a hand, didn't it? A handle mm. underneath it. No sound. It. Yeah, no, no sound. sound. Just yeah. jerky movements. Yeah, jerky movements. <laughs> <laughs> I know and they were bad lo- color yeah. and bad color yes <laughs> and and being so pleased with the outcome yes <laughs> look at me were- I'm <laughs> on the screen I'm moving <laughs> you're listening to women making waves radio show and podcast brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness this show is all about women doing extraordinary things I have to say, all the way through this pandemic, I um, I have so much... Well, I had a lot of respect for nurses and the medical side, but actually it's become so much more pronounced now, isn't it, what mm. they've, they've all gone through in this last year and a half. 
I know that it's it's really brought home what we take for granted really we have such an amazing health service we do and they have been on the front line they must have been really scared a lot of them i know some of them had actually moved out of the family home to yeah, protect their right. families you know while, while they were dealing with covid patients and things yeah. like that real life-changing kind of moves this brings us on really to our guest today professor dame elizabeth Anionwu, mm. because She's interesting, isn't she? Very, very fascinating lady. Her parents met at Cambridge University, didn't they? Mm. Her father was Nigerian and her mother was white, Irish. In those days, back in well, the 1940s, you know, it just was a very, very difficult start for, for Dame Elizabeth. What a great listen that's going to be. And to receive a knighthood because of her services to nursing is, is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. So absolutely looking brilliant. forward to that. And uh, talking of another strong woman, of course, mm-hmm. we, we've we also got Imogen Grant joining us today. Imogen, star in the rowing world. And of course, she, she came out of Cambridge University as well. She's still there, actually. But she's taken time out to be in the Team GB Olympic rowing squad. And, um, and she's about to go to Tokyo. Women Making Waves. Our guest today is rowing star Imogen Grant, member of the Team GB Olympic rowing squad for this summer's Games in Tokyo. Imogen has been in the winning team of the Women's Cambridge-Oxford boat race not once but twice and recently won a silver medal in the lightweight double skulls in the European Rowing Championships in Italy. Imogen is a medical student at Cambridge University, although this has been put on hold in order to train for the Olympics. Thank you very much for joining us on Women Making Waves today, Imogen. Thank you for having me. No, you're very welcome. It's, it's a privilege to have you, actually. You're local to the Cambridgeshire area and you went to school in Cambridge. Were you really sporty at school? Were you one of these people that was in every team and winning everything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, not only did I go to university in Cambridge, I also grew up there. So I spent quite a lot of time uh, in the city. It's one of my favourite places to be. But yeah, when I was younger, I did everything. I was just really enthusiastic about all sorts of after-school clubs. My school was amazing. There were so many of them and a lot of those were sports clubs. And I was very, very lucky that my parents were happy to cart me around to various matches at the weekends or take me to after-school things, pick me up later, all of that sort of thing. Uh, I did all sorts of different ones, but I never really wanted to take any to a higher level because it would mean having to give up a different one to do the first one twice a week, say, rather than once a week. Imogen, it strikes me as being a parent myself, um, was it the case where your parents would come home from yet another match and sort of sit down in the armchair and think, my goodness, when do I get my rest? Were you always being taken from place to place? Oh, it was all sorts. You know, I was in the school teams for netball and hockey and a lot of those classic sports when I was in primary school, more than secondary school. So yes, there were those Saturday morning uh, <laughs> matches that sometimes my parents would stay and sometimes they would you know, drop me off and maybe pick me up later. But as I got older, it was more of individual sports, I suppose. Um, so I did quite a lot of gymnastics, quite a lot of diving, 
uh, swimming as well that I was really interested in. And then slightly later on, some martial arts similar to Taekwondo style. Yeah, I, I don't know how they had the energy to get in the car <laughs> saying, come on, Imogen, we're late. Time to go. Jack's thing. <laughs> Just wait till that's your turn. You really see the other end of that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I've got to pay it forwards at some point, haven't I? (laughs) When did you take up rowing then? When did that become a thing that you liked? Well, that wasn't until university, actually. I did that of my own accord. (laughs) Nothing to do with any of the sports my parents drove me to when I was a kid. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd grown up in Cambridge my whole life. I obviously must have seen rowing on the river, but I never picked up an oar until I got to university and it was in Freshers Week. I went to Trinity College, well, still go to Trinity College at the University of Cambridge and the college boat club there, first and third Trinity boat club, they hold an event during Freshers Week, which is boaty cocktails. And if you sign up for a taster session or a tubbing session, as they're called, you get two free drinks. And so me and the rest of my fresher friends went along, obviously, free (laughs) drinks. I signed up for a taster session. And when it rolled around the next week, Rather than kind of sacking it off like I maybe intended on doing, I I went along, thought I might as well. Told them that I'd rowed before, uh, even though I hadn't, so that I got to go in a slightly nicer boat. um, And pretty much signed up for another taster session there and then. (laughs) I was actually going to ask you, do they take students that haven't rowed before? But you just completely answered that question. That's amazing. That's brilliant the way you've done that. That's great. Every single year, thousands of students go onto the River Cam who have never rowed before. And they go out on these tubs, these massive, really heavy wooden bottomed boats um, that have one or even two people sitting in coxing them and then two people rowing in them. And they get taught to row. And I was lucky enough to be one of them with some extremely enthusiastic novice coaches who... Once I decided I really liked this thing, were also very patient with my emails going, um, can I have some more outings this week, please? Uh, <laughs> can I go rowing a little bit more often, please? Which I'm sure was very welcome when they're tearing their hair out, uh, trying to organise the hundreds of people who had signed up to learn to row. I mean, I suppose, really, a lot of people must have their eye on the boat race, you know, the famous boat race, and think, oh, I really want to be part of that. Was that something that crossed your mind at the time? Yeah, a little bit. Um, So I I started at Cambridge in the autumn of 2014. And 2015 was the first year that women's boat race was held on the Tideway on the same place on the same day as the men's boat race. Mm -hmm. And we went and watched it in London. And I'd started doing a little bit of development squad work with the Cambridge University Boat Club that year. But it was very basic, um, just erging and being given technical advice on short sessions at the Goldie Boathouse in Cambridge. But I remember being in London, you know, having a, a pims in my hand on the bank and watching these two eights come past. And the Oxford crew that year was really, really strong. And I remember them rowing past us and just sort of going, wow, they look amazing. They look so good. They look so fast. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe I could do that. But I'm quite small. But maybe. I was just going to ask you, Imogen, if you could just explain the dynamics of the boats. You said two eight. So that's two boats of eight rowers. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. The boat race is a much more unique style of racing to what I do now. International racing is six lanes across. So six different boats lining up against each other over two kilometres, which usually takes anywhere between five and a half to eight minutes depending on the type of boat that you're racing in comparison 
the boat race is a 1v1 grudge match duel between Oxford and Cambridge <laughs> and they line up on the tideway. It's a 6.8 kilometer course. So on three times the length of the international racing, like the racing that goes on at the Olympic Games. And it's usually sort of takes you about 15 or even 20 minutes if it's really windy to finish. And in the boat race, you either win or you lose. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's harsh, isn't it? It's very, very harsh. And I love your description of grudge match because that's exactly <laughs> what it is, isn't it? <laughs> Been going on for years. You'd think they'd have made friends by this point, wouldn't you? You would think so, wouldn't you? It must have been really, really exciting then when you were actually picked to take part in the boat race. And then, of course, two years running, you were in the winning boat. Yeah, it was amazing. So my first year and then the second year of university, I trialled for the Cambridge University team. And I didn't make the blue bike that year. I was quite close, but I lost my final seat race, um, which is where you race against one other person, switch boats, and then race again. The person that makes those boats go fastest wins their seat race and gets the seat in the boat. So I I raced in the reserve crew in 2016 and experienced a win uh, on the tideway in the same year that the blue boat sank in those terrible, terrible conditions in 2016. yeah, that's right. But yeah, coming back for the 2017 race, I, I knew what I wanted. But again, it was really, really tight. I was the last seat in on my side because there's bow side and stroke side the oars that go out the different side of the boat and then there's only four spots on each side when you're rowing the boat race and I was the fourth out of four so there was quite a lot of seat racing again and uncertainty as to whether I'd make the boat so when the final seat racing was done and the crews were announced it was so exciting it was so you know I'd, I'd really wanted it the year before and to be able to achieve it the next year and then win the boat race in record time as well it was it was amazing um I look back on that race and that boat and that crew with really fond memories I can imagine at what point then because you've actually you've put your your training on hold your 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 medical training on hold at what point did rowing change from being well a hobby I suppose to an obsession I guess because that's what it it must kind of be (laughs) yeah well I feel like those uh novice coaches that I was talking about were it became an obsession about two weeks in um but uh I started really taking it seriously probably in the autumn of 2016 uh so after my win in the reserve crew and the year decided I wanted to trial for the blue boat I also decided that I would trial for the under 23 GB rowing team which it's slightly less competitive it's for under 23s and there's a series of trials that you go to over the course of the year that you sort of have to balance with trialing for the boat race or, or doing other races. I had to learn to scull, so row with two blades rather than just one blade like the boat race. And I made my first under 23 team um, in 2017. And obviously that was a next step and that was really exciting. And then we came fifth, which is really disappointing. I like to win, I like to get a medal. <laughs> um, and similar to how I'd come back knowing that I really wanted a seat in the blue boat, for the 2018 season, not only did I want that seat in the blue boat again, um, I knew that I really wanted a medal at the under 23 World Championships. So that's kind of where I started taking it seriously. And of course, then you were selected for the Olympic team for the, the 2020 Olympics. I mean, that must have been a real moment, Imogen. Yeah, it's it's funny because um, it sometimes feels like selection is very binary. You're either in or you're out and then you find out and everything changes. But by the time you get to really high levels, it's almost a 
a gradual accumulation of evidence. You go from having no idea at all to being actually really quite sure over a, a series of months. And so when it was kind of confirmed, we'd sort of, I don't want to say known it for a while, but the final selection for the Olympics you know, only happened a couple of months ago after we got that silver medal at the European Championships this year. Mm-hmm. So we knew that we had a really good crew and combination coming up. Um, before it was announced it's only now in the final lead-in that I think I'm believing it and not only believing that I've been selected believing that the races are going to happen and I'm going to Tokyo and and that sort of thing. (laughs) Is is there any doubt about that at the moment is it absolutely 100% on now I know in the press there kind of been there's lots of questions about will it will it happen are you confident it will happen, the Olympic Games? I'm really confident. At, at this point, there's always news articles and, and people saying, oh, this or that. Mm. And, you know, it's not been without its obstacles and without its challenges. I mean, we've had a full 12-month postponement where we trained out of our living rooms for 16 weeks last year. You know, there's been plenty of obstacles put in our way. But at this point, I... I'm so grateful to everyone that's put in the work to organise it. And I'm really sure that we're going to get there and mm-hmm. be able to sit on the at the Sea Forest Waterway where we're going to race. And it's going to be a normal race, which is just amazing. And yeah. it's so exciting. Yeah, it's oh. exciting. When you say a normal race, Imogen, it's not really a normal race. Is it? <laughs> it really is a, you know, a unique and what an amazing opportunity. I'd like to ask you, though, Imogen, about your teammates. How do you all get on and, and do you fall out sometimes? Oh, I can't say that I've had a falling out with anyone, to be honest. <laughs> you know, it's it's an interesting place to be because we're almost colleagues, but mm. we're also friends. We spend so much time living in hotels out of the country with each other especially this year with quarantine restrictions and very strict requirements on that front we really haven't had much contact with anybody else so the number of hours that everyone has spent with each other I think means the really tight-knit team and also at this point it's just amazing seeing everybody doing so well and being able to egg each other on and say oh wow you did this wow that's really fast oh but you did this look you looked really good when you're doing that thing and yeah that kind of atmosphere is just just really fun and I'm in quite a small boat because it's just me and my doubles partner in the lightweight women's double mm-hmm. but there's so many other boats around us like the pair and the four and, and Vicky and the single as well as the women's eight and the women's quad just being able to egg each other on and and there's a really great team environment and the the whole idea of when you're training I mean you've had to stop and start and you're your training has stopped because of the pandemic. How manages your sort of actual approach to training and going for the Olympics, thinking about your nutrition and your daily activities? How does it all work and how do you train yourself to do this with, you know, by going through all this pandemic moment as well? Yeah, well, I think as rowers, we're, we're really lucky, actually, by virtue of all of the previous success of all the rowers who have come before us, the national lottery funding that we receive is just amazing uh, in enabling us to do the training without any distractions. So the athletes on the team are lottery funded, which means that we don't need to worry about work 
support or making money in other ways so we can really focus on our training um, and it also means that we've got dedicated nutritionists dedicated physiologists psychologists not to mention all of the coaches of the different boats and they work really really closely together I think it's a massive strength of our team actually you know I trust my coach Darren implicitly with the training decisions that he makes because not only is he really experienced we have the gang of five that we call it with our physiologist and uh, physiotherapist and a psychologist another coach just to sense check and just really make an absolutely world-class program and that's what we follow year on year the majority of the time I think we're doing about 13 to 16 sessions a week usually with one day off so most of the time three sessions a day some days with two sessions combination of rowing on the water rowing on a rowing machine and lifting weights and actually during the pandemic last year it was really tough but actually not quite seamless but it felt pretty seamless transition from taking a rowing machine home taking some weights home and pretty much doing exactly the same thing we were doing at the centre, but from our living rooms. I can't think of many sports where if you're training, you can actually take it home with you and train <laughs> in the living room. <laughs> yes, true. we were very lucky. We weren't able to row on the water for, I think, 10 weeks, maybe slightly longer. And I think that was the longest time that I'd gone since I started rowing, you know, not rowing on the water. But the rowing machine exists and... Although it's not exactly the same as rowing on the water, it does make you really strong and it does make you really fit. And working with our coaches and the physiologists and all of the team around us, we were able to really use the the lockdown, especially that first one, actually to our advantage in a lot of ways. And I think we got some really good training done in the midst of what felt like the entire world crumbled around us. Just on the, the pandemic, I mean, it obviously impacted you with your sport, but I'm kind of imagining that you must have lots of friends from uni who are now actually working on the front line in the pandemic as junior doctors. Is is that the case? Yeah, that's right. Um, if I hadn't taken time out, I would have been in the year that was graduated early to be the FIY1s to work on the COVID wards during that first wave of the pandemic. So it was all of the people that I'd done my first four years of medical training with who were directly on the front lines, graduated early that year while I was training at home. They were in their hospitals and hearing from them, you know, it was so daunting and mm. they were working with such compassion and such enthusiasm almost to help and get that job done. Yeah, it was a really strange perspective I think thinking about that fork that choice that to take that time out yes but you'll be looking forward after the Olympics to getting your sleeves rolled up and getting back in there and finishing off your studies yeah straight back to it the the next year of my studies starts on the 9th of August so it'll be a quick flight back from Japan maybe a week and then uh, I'll be straight back into it and and actually Imogen you obviously adore sport as you told us every part of sport is is good for you if you hadn't have done rowing do you, you would have seen yourself doing another sport that interests you what would have been second best to rowing was there something else that you could have done that you might have tried yourself and rather enjoyed maybe <laughs> the list is endless I, I, think, I, yeah. <laughs> I've, I feel like at this point I've, I've tried quite a lot of different sports and there's a lot that I really enjoy but I describe rowing as my gateway drug to the high performance sport world and sort of after learning to row or discovering cycling was really, really fun. Discovering through lifting weights, weightlifting as a sport mm-hmm. itself, I really admire. And 
as a family, we always uh, skied every year since I was really very, very young. And although I can't do that at the moment, because if I fall over and break myself, that would be really sad. I love cross-country skiing as well. And, you know, variety is something that I really enjoy. So those are, mm. those are just three of the different sports that... Yeah, I could definitely yeah. see myself doing. You hear lots of athletes switching sport at some stage after they've obviously achieved quite a bit. You've got like Victoria Pendleton and then you've got um, Usain Bolt. I don't think I've ever heard that before until very recently where athletes actually change from one sport to another. Is that something that you see quite a bit now? There's definitely a list of examples that I can think of. Rebecca Romero, who won medals for cycling for Great Britain, was also a rower. And there's Hayley Simmons as well. She uh, rode for Cambridge, actually. She rode in Blondie, the reserve boat, um, and is now an extremely successful cyclist. High profile-wise, Bradley Wiggins, um, obviously incredible at cycling, tried his hand at rowing as well. I mean, Greg Rutherford just uh, yeah, started doing right. stuff with uh, Bob Slay as well. Yeah, I think, you know, sport is just so much fun. And once you've had a taste of it in one of them, I feel like it makes you hungry for more. And just doing sport is so much fun. And I'd love to just be able to share that with as many people as possible in as many sports as possible. Do you think that younger women, I mean, were you fairly confident when you were at the age where you were, when you started again to rowing? Obviously, you went along for the drinks, obviously, and then the rowing came second and you absolutely <laughs> adored it. I mean, that's that's how it goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but do you, do you think that you offer any advice to young women about trying a sport, any sport? Because... It is important, is it, for women to get into team sport as much as it is great that we're doing single sports as well. But team sport is really important. Yeah, I mean, any sport. I did quite a lot of sports when I was younger, but I still didn't describe myself as sporty. I'd always <laughs> say, well, I'm, I'm not sporty. I'm just someone who does sports because I was really focused on my academics because I wanted to go to Cambridge and I wanted to be a doctor. And for some reason in my head, I'd told myself that well, I'm an academic person, so I can't possibly be that good at sports. It's just something that I do and it's kind of fun. And actually, by the time I picked up rowing at university, that was probably the least fit that I'd ever been. Because as I'd sort of reached the end of my teenage years, the amount of sport that I'd done had been getting less and less. And I, you know, I was doing quite a lot of academic work, but I'd kind of been deciding that sports isn't for me. I'm not sporty. That's that's not what I do. I do the academic side or, or I do the creative side of things. And actually, it was only after I picked up rowing again and realised that I could be a scholar athlete and excel in my studies at Cambridge and also excel in sports that I realised I was really pigeonholing myself when I was younger. Um, mm, yeah, and, and yeah, I think a lot of girls probably go through that through that bit in secondary school especially moving away from doing the sports that they might love um, mm. and I think that's really sad because sport is just the most amazing connector and yeah. the most amazing way to learn how to work as a team how to understand what you want how to go after your goals you know how to understand your body understand how to feed your body effectively and take care of your body effectively and there's just so many amazing things that you can learn from sport that I think you lose if you give it up at a young age. And that's something that can happen quite a lot to, to young girls. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Often encouraged to give up things as well. Parents or, or whoever might think it's getting in the way of the studies. So your family, I'm assuming, are firstly quite relieved that they don't have to drive you to Japan. Um, and, but <laughs> Definitely. I'm, 
I'm assuming that they're maybe attending with you, or at least they must be thrilled to bits about the Olympics and what's about to happen. Yeah, they're so excited. And over the last few years, they've definitely learned a lot more about rowing, figuring out the rowing lingo, remembering that I row in a double and not a pair, even though both of those boats have two people in. The double is the one that has two blades on each side and the pair that's got one blade on each side, I row in the double. No, they're, they're so proud of me and their support means everything. And it was announced earlier this year that no foreign spectators are being permitted in the country for the Tokyo Olympics to ensure that it can be run in a safe manner. And, you know, that's really sad because I would have loved to see my parents and my mum and dad, mm, yeah. you know, on the finish line. And I had lots of friends planning to, to fly out and support as well. So that can't happen, which is sad, but they're going to be supporting me from home. Oh, uh, they will. And it's going to be a lot of either very late nights or very early mornings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still making it difficult for them, even though they don't have to drive me around. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that is not the case, but it sounds a lovely story anyway. One thing that Linda and I might do, and might just get some coaching from you, is I think we'll have to get a rowing machine. I think we'll have to get a rowing machine. You make it sound easy, Imogen. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. It's, it's it is. Yeah. Yeah. There's an amazing um, thing that was started up in the November lockdown last year, actually. It's called ZoomErgos.com, mm. and it was set up by the chairman of British Rowing, and... You know, the lockdown happened again. People having been able to row on the water for a couple of months were suddenly not able to row on the water once again. And mm. rowing is a team sport. You usually row as a crew. So not being able to row with other people is really sad and, you know, quite demotivating for people that might not have been able to get on the water for a really, really long time. And Zoom Ergos uh, connects people via Zoom for these sessions. So everyone can be erging on the big grid screen together and anyone who wants can join and it's completely free. And there are all sorts of different sessions. So instance or more techniques and longer ones, shorter ones. Uh, some of them focusing on re-rows um, of Olympic games races or boat races. And that sort of thing. A whole cast of uh, ex-Olympians, Mark Hunter, Matthew Pinsent. We did one, uh, 17 Blue Boat, not that long ago. And that's been really, really well received by the whole rowing community, I think. A great resource for keeping in touch. Well, when you're starting any race, particularly when you're going to be in the Olympics, obviously, or all your important races, when you're literally waiting to go, the gun to go, what's the most important thing that you have to think about just before you start off and win that race? What goes through your mind? What settles you? The only thing that is going through my mind after they say attention my eyes are on that red light it's a red light that goes to a green light and they say attention go at the start of the race mm. and I'm watching that red light and waiting for the red light to go out because that's when I'm going to go and all I'm thinking about is that first stroke yeah the first stroke that's right not going to the loo yeah. then <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> all that water well Imogen Grant it's been absolutely brilliant chatting to you today we'll be one of the people sitting up at three o'clock in the morning <laughs> watching you now and uh, and egging you on and hoping that you win all the best you've worked so hard for this I'm sure it's going to be absolutely brilliant and we'll look forward to seeing you back in Cambridge at the end of it back at the uni thank you very much for joining us yeah, today thank you very much thank you it's thank you Imogen Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio. We are delighted to introduce you to Dame Elizabeth Anion Wu. 
Elizabeth has an incredible career so far. A fellow of the Royal College of Nursing has achieved recognition for revolutionizing the treatment of sickle cell disease that was inspired by Mary Seacole, battled her way through the inequalities of nursing and the discrimination that black nurses face then and now. Elizabeth is also author to a book called Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union 2, which refers to her parents who met at Cambridge University, now about as well to launch Dreams from My Mother. Welcome, Elizabeth, and thank you very much for taking time out today to share with us your story. There's never enough time at the beginning of an interview to fully lay out all the achievements. And I must say, your career, your work highlighting the work of Mary Seacole, your other achievements, your damehood for services to nursing, becoming an author. Wow, I mean, you've done lots and lots. What part, though, of your early life do you think triggered your route into nursing? Thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me. It's a huge pleasure. To answer that question, it was during my early childhood in a children's home. I was in Nazareth House Catholic Children's Home until the age of nine in Birmingham. And there was a nun who treated my eczema in such a way that she never, ever caused me pain when she changed the dressings, unlike other nuns. And, and this particular nun, I, I, I used to think of her as the white nun. Well, actually, all the nuns were white, but she used to wear a white habit rather than the traditional black habit that I was more familiar with. And what she would do would be to make me laugh. But she made me laugh in a, in a very unique way because immersed as I was in the Catholic faith, as you are as a child in that setting, we had been told that nuns were the brides of Christ, you know, extremely holy women. So I was quite shocked when this nun used to use words like bottom. And she, <laughs> she caught me every time she did it. I just burst out laughing. Of course, it was distraction therapy, wasn't it? And it wasn't that long before I left the convent to go and live with my mother and stepfather that I discovered she was something called a nurse. Now, I'd never, ever wanted to be a nun. Uh, okay. But I thought, a nurse? Yeah, that's something I would like to do. You say that you met this uh, wonderful nun who didn't give you pain, was very empathetic and looked after you. I felt that's what you're saying to us. Oh. But you did have pain before, didn't you? There was a lot of pain and you you were taken away from your mum at a very early age. And that must have a huge sort of influence on your life after coming out of the convent and your life now, what you've achieved, I suppose. Well, I've often reflected on how, how did I come through it all? And, and, I, and I know I've had a successful life. I know now, and I really understand it, it's that I never, ever experienced any sense of rejection from my mother. I didn't know who my father was. I gradually realised he must have given me the brown skin colour, you know, because I could not answer people's questions. Those, you know, where are you from? I could answer that, Birmingham. But I soon found out that that wasn't the answer that people were looking for. And I... This wasn't a question generally that was asked in a, near, a really horrible way, by the way, I think. But I gradually realised that they weren't interested in where was I from, where was I born, uh, because they would challenge me on it. No, 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 no. Where are you really from? And I, as a child, I didn't understand why they didn't accept my answer. I gradually did realise, of course, they obviously wanted to know why did I have this brown skin? Where was the parent from that 
gave me the brown skin. They didn't, nobody ever articulated that to me. But my memories of childhood, certainly in the convent, overall are, are quite happy. But there are some, you're quite right, there are some negative memories and that are linked with race. Some in the convent, more so uh, when I went to live with my, my stepfather. But in terms of the convent, I washed my face 10 times to try and become white. And I had eczema. And so this was not a good idea. I ended up in sickbay. And obviously, I wanted to be like my friends. All of them were white. And all the children that I grew up with in the convent were white. And also, I remember one, there was a very kind nun who... Uh, she picked me amongst a few other children in the convent to play a, a role in this little play that she pulled together about nursery rhyme characters. And so she chose me to be Humpty Dumpty and I was absolutely thrilled. I was a bit of a show off, I'm pretty sure, you know, and um, thrilled a bit. But another nun came along and started arguing with her. Now, I'd never seen nuns argue ever so I had mixed emotions one was I was I was so distressed the thought that I wasn't going to be able to take part in this and be Humpty Dumpty but the other part of me was actually quite enjoying that I was the reason that these two nuns were arguing because it was really strange to see nuns arguing I'm really arguing because one nun was saying no Elizabeth will be Humpty Dumpty the other one was saying no she can't be and the reason why I this is because I was half cast. Now, I never, as a child, realised the irony of that. It wasn't until many, many years later as an adult, and I was telling somebody this story. They said, but you know, Elizabeth, Humpty Dumpty's an egg. And as she said that, I thought, you know, she's right. I would have envisaged Humpty Dumpty, I don't know, being a white egg. But of course, there's brown eggs. There's, yes. there's very dark brown eggs. Never, never thought of that at all. So, I mean, really stupid. But I mean, how cruel to use your power to try and withhold. But this other nun stood her ground. And I, I did play Humpty Dumpty and I, I fell off that wall. Yeah, I was very happy. It wasn't until I went to live with my mother and stepfather that race did rear its head in, a, in the sense that my stepfather was being teased by his friends down at the pub. What's he doing with a half-class child in and how? <laughs> this is now, we're talking, I was born in 1947, so we're talking about 1956, 57, just to put it in context. And this was Wolverhampton, which wasn't as diverse as it is obviously now. And um, he physically abused me. And my mother wasn't aware until the really serious uh, beating he gave me. Uh, and that's because I never told my mother. He, he would always hit me or, when my mum wasn't around. So he was quite careful in the way he did it. It does break my heart to hear this. It really does, Elizabeth yeah. and I. To know, I think what was quite poignant there, well, they're, they're all very important parts that you have been very honest about. So thank you for being very honest about that. It's always very hard, I think, to say that. But you, I think was what was really hard was when you said that you had to wash your face so many times to yeah. become white. I find that really, really heartbreaking, as well as everything else that you've been through. Please, I'm not demeaning no, anything, but I find that bit very hard. You know, you are a person. You are a wonderful person. We're all humans. And to see that is is awful. If we just go back a little bit, you Obviously, your mum and dad met while they were at Cambridge University, right. had a relationship. They had you. Any student who has a child, it's quite a cultural shock. Whatever you do, is there? For your mum and your dad, it must have been incredibly difficult as well. Did your mother want to talk about that time in her life? Obviously, you have the book that you've written, but was that quite a, a very 
sort of charged moment to talk about it? Well, I never asked her questions about it. I, I, I asked her a couple of times in letter in a letter. Could she tell me about her her life? And so she did reveal then that um, the shock and horror of when her parents realised she was pregnant. And uh, I also had a clearer picture of the circumstances. I then, it, it was clear to me that my mother was the brightest of, of the family, a very gifted child, that she had got a scholarship to Newnham College to study classics in 1945. So the last year of the Second World War, that my father had come over from Nigeria, but he was older than my mother, and he was completing his law degree. He was at Trinity Hall. And then he went back to Nigeria. But, but basically, what I did discover in the letters that my mother had never told me was that my mother at one point was engaged to my father and that the plan was that he, he was going to go back to Nigeria and that she would join him at some point with me. I mean, that was the plan, which never, never happened. But my mother never told me she was engaged. I mean, all she told me was she had this brief affair with my father and that it wasn't, turned out that it wasn't as serious a relationship as she thought. But actually, it was a longer and more committed relationship than she was able to tell me about. I think, it, it, I think I know it was such a traumatic period in her life because she, she dropped out of Cambridge, even though she could have gone back and completed her degree. Now, the university didn't know that she was pregnant. The story that they were told was that she'd had a nervous breakdown and she'd gone to Ireland to recuperate. But you could see from the, her tutor at Cambridge that there was a huge desire for my mom to come back and complete her degree, that she was seen as an excellent student. She was going to get a first. I mean, all got, this is all in the... Because what happened was when I decided I wanted to write my memoirs, my mother had by now died, I thought, I wonder if I can find out anything from their universities. So I, I wrote to Cambridge universities. I wrote to both the halls. Um, and I got, it, I got a little bit of information about my dad. And I got some information about my mother, this business about... You know, she'd had a nervous breakdown, etc. But what I got more was when I wrote to Nazareth House archives, the, the children's homes archives. They didn't have any photographs of me, but they did have a dossier of information, correspondence. I think it was about 53 items of correspondence, including a very crisp birth certificate. And this was all the correspondence between my grandfather and the children's home. And then my mother took over the correspondence after she'd had me it would be dreadful to, to not make use of it to be very honest you know yeah. so that's where I got I think a lot of decent information about my upbringing not everything I would have liked but quite a lot so I that's when I realized my father he visited me in the children's home it was only the one so he was not involved in any way in my upbringing as a baby or as, as and it wasn't until say I was 25 that and it was only when I realised I, I had a friend who was a Sierra Leonean barrister in, in, in London and he happened to mention he, he taught Nigerian law students occasionally. So I said, oh, John, so this is a Monday evening in June 1972. I would be 25 in, in the, the next month. And I said, John, do you think you could ask your students where, what part of Nigeria this name comes from? So I said, oh, OK, yeah, I'll do that. That was a Monday evening. 
And then on Wednesday morning, he rang me. I was now a health visitor in London. And he said, oh, I've spoken to your father. Wow. I said, wow. what? In Nigeria? Yeah. No, I said, he's in London. Yeah. And I, I rang him, met him the next day, and I was still known for eight years. You know, it was so incredible that I made contact with him at that time. In 1979, so a few years after the point that we're talking about, when you met your father, you became the first sickle cell and thalassemia specialist in Britain. Those diseases had quite a low profile in this country at the time. And I think you, you picked up on that and really pushed them. Was that what your thinking was at the time? Were you, were you quite shocked when you discovered what was going on with those? So I, I became the first sickle cell and thalassemia nurse counsellor because, you know, I had been aware of haematologists, blood specialists and paediatricians would look after children with this condition eventually when I heard about the condition. But I didn't know nurses could have a role. They certainly didn't have a role, a specialist role, I should say, in this country. So what's propelled me in certain areas of campaigning is anger. And I, I remember when I was a health visitor coming across a family with a nine-year-old boy with sickle cell anemia. And the mother was reasonably happy about his medical care, but she was really frustrated. She wanted to know so much more about the illness and how she could help her son, maybe even prevent some of his painful crises. She had an understandable thirst for more information. I couldn't tell her anything. And I, I really got on well with this mom. And I was so frustrated and I just realised I hadn't been taught anything about sickle cell in my nursing educational programmes. So that would be my nurse, what was called state registered nurse qualification at that point, three year programme at Paddington General Hospital in West London in the late 60s. The sickle cell was around then, but we weren't taught about it. I don't remember ever coming across a patient with the condition. But I didn't do much children's nursing, I have to be honest, at that point. Then I did my health visitor training in London in 1970-71. No information about sickle cell anemia. Yet we did get information about inherited illnesses, long-term conditions. So I, I thought, why are we not learning about these illnesses? And I, This was a period now. I'd come back from France. I'd worked in France for nine months. Actually, I was teaching English to some doctor's children. It was a really cushy job. I loved it a bit. But it was there I met a French Benin midwife, Paula. And I told her the story about washing my face 10 times. And she said to me, had I read Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks? I'd never even heard of Franz Fanon. And in fact, she picked up that for all the reading that I did, she had quickly elicited that I didn't know any writers of colour. So as you read this book, I read it. It's a bit difficult to start with. It was quite theoretical. But then it really clarified, because he was a psychiatrist, Franz Fanon, from the French Caribbean Martinique, working in Algiers in a huge psychiatric hospital before Algeria got its independence from France. And he really had I observed that many brown-skinned, black-skinned individuals were, were stigmatised by their skin colour, their brown-black skin colour. And he argued that this was due to the effects of colonialism and, and therefore, you know, it wasn't surprising that people who were not white, who were brown, black-skinned, could loathe their, their identity and the impact this could have on their mental health. Honestly, this book was an eye-opener for me because it just made me understand why I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. It made me realise, well, 
Why? You don't need to be. It's not your fault. It's other people's perception of you. And obviously I started reading around a lot more, well, a lot more black writers to start. And that's really what made me realise I need to know more about the black community. I need to get more involved with the black community. And I, I, at some point, need to try and find out about my father. That was the trigger for all of that. Mm. Your real interest, and it's fantastic, and what you have done for the memory of Mary Seacol, who was a Jamaican nurse. There is a statue of Mary Seacole now at St. Thomas's Hospital. The, 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 I didn't learn about Mary Seacole until 1984, when Ziggy Alexander and Audrey Duji brought out Mary Seacole's 1857 autobiography, The Wonderful World of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. And again, I was angry. How come I never, you know, I, I recognise why we're taught about Florence Nightingale and her, her importance to the nursing profession. There's no, no problem with that, no question of that. But hold on, hold on. There's this woman who's of Jamaican-Scottish heritage who also went out to the Crimean War, who, who was actually well-recognised in the British Victorian media. So how come we weren't taught about her in the little bit about nursing history that we did get? So anger was boiling up inside of me deep down, you know. When I had the opportunity, when I was a professor of nursing at the University of West London, I set up a, a small research centre about nursing, particularly multi-ethnic aspects of nursing. In 2003, Lord Clive Soley approached me and 10 other people to join his newly established charity called the Mary Seacole Memorial Statue Appeal. I was delighted. So that's how I got to be involved with that. And I became uh, the vice chair. You got your CB in 2001, as we mentioned earlier, and then your damehood in February 2017. And in these pictures, and also the other uh, revealing of the statue at St. Thomas's of Mary Seacole, you wear some delicious outfits. And I just want to know who designs them? Where do you get them from? What do they say about you, Elizabeth? Well, they're classic Nigerian outfits. I got them made by a Nigerian dressmaker because I've never really dressed up. I, I don't have a little black number anywhere. I love wearing these outfits. They're beautiful colours. They feel comfortable. And the, 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 the hat, which is called a gele, is beautiful because I'm, I'm not even five foot. So to put this lovely gele adds a few inches to me as well. But I, I just love these outfits. I feel very comfortable at ceremonies and events. They're easy for somebody like me who never grew up, as I've said, with that little black number. It's not, I, I don't wear heels. I, I don't wear makeup. I, I'm very straightforward in my business. But obviously, if you go to a big event, you, you do, you do want to feel good. And those costumes have, have served their purpose extremely well. Well, what pleases me most uh, is, is when particularly Nigerians, but Africans who might wear similar costumes have said to me how proud they are of me, that I've got the confidence to go to such ceremonies. And I, I've never thought of it as confidence. I just thought they're fantastic. The memoir that's coming out in September is published, whereas my first memoirs were self-published five years ago so I was delighted to be approached by the publisher and they're bringing it out both as a book but also as an audio book in September and the title is Dreams from My Mother and so it's an updated and an extended version of my memoirs but obviously brought bang up to date and so I'm 
I'm really thrilled and have enjoyed the experience of working with a publisher, I have to say, yeah. Why was the title changed? Because it was originally Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union. Was that was that your idea to give it a fresh title completely? This, this is a re, a, definitely a refreshed memoir. Obviously, you can imagine a lot of thinking about a new title. I was, I was quite happy for a new title. And I loved when it was suggested Dreams from my mother because I've said in my memoir, in my previous memoir, that one of my role models is President Obama. And, you know, he brought out his original memoirs as dreams from my father. When I saw dreams from my mother, I thought, oh, how clever that is, because my mother was so influential in making me who I am, giving up so much to protect me. And I've never had this sense of rejection ever with her. And and what an acknowledgement for, for my mother. I'm delighted with that title. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Dame Elizabeth Annie Unwoo, you are absolutely fantastic indeed. It's been a pleasure, hasn't it, Linda? It's been really... It has. It's been fantastic. Oh, it's just absolutely fantastic to be able to talk to you. And thank you so much for your time, Elizabeth. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's been lovely to talk to you both. Thank you. quite shocking good mm-hmm. to hear it though I think it's important that we hear stories like this and journeys so that we learn from this I really, yes that's really right think I mean that's... we know that generally children's homes back in the 50s weren't exactly the happiest places to be mm. I think it's very very interesting that her mother was absolutely no she cannot be adopted I will be taking her back as soon as I can and did try she was always with her really she was always supporting her as best she could you're right and I feel really honoured to have spoken with Professor Dame Elizabeth Anionwu she's perfect wasn't she for women making waves honoured to have met Imogen Grant as well we wish her all the best and the rest of Team GB Olympic team as well, the Olympic squad, at the Tokyo Olympics. Everything will be crossed and we will be watching out for you, Imogen. <laughs> we will indeed. I've even got a new TV just for that. Well, yes. You've added to your fleet of TVs. Yes, absolutely. Or have you I... replaced one? No, I've replaced one. We were going to do it last year, actually. Of course, there was no Olympics. So mm-hmm. we decided we were having a, a new screen for the Olympics. So yes, looking forward to that. I'm, I'm frightened course. to ask, but what size is this screen? <laughs> well, it's not too big, Linda. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's a 50. It's yeah. not too big. I bet you've got a bigger one. Bet I haven't, no. <laughs> no, we don't have a very big TV at all. <laughs> so thank you very much to Imogen Grant for being in the programme today and also to Professor Dame Elizabeth Annie Onwu. You can contact us via social media on Twitter and Facebook at WomenMW or on Instagram at Women Making Waves Radio. You can also find us on cambridge105.co.uk or visit our website womenmakingwaves.co.uk where you can hear all of our interviews.